Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz saxophonist Teodros Avery. We talked to him about his latest 2019 CD, After the Rain, Coltrane. He's a very powerful live performer. He grew up in Oakland, and his parents exposed him to a wide range of music, including traditional Eastern and Western African music, soul, rock, and jazz. He started out on the guitar, but was jolted by the sound of John Coltrane's giant steps and switched to the saxophone at 13. As a testament to his young promise, the great Wynton Marsalis purchased a saxophone for him. At 17, he eventually won a full music scholarship to attend the prestigious Berklee College of Music, and he's gone on to quite a career. Enjoy. Again, thanks for taking a minute out. So I guess my question to you before we get into your Coltrane album is, what have you been doing to creatively, you know, to, to satisfy your head creatively during this time? Oh, I, I actually probably am more focused now than before, um, uh, just because I have um, a couple projects that I'm getting ready to release. Um, I'm promoting some video footage or performance footage. Um, I'm practicing in a very uninterrupted way. Um, I mean, you know, when, when things are going as normal, there's just more, I almost say distractions, but just more things that you have to be attentive to, right? Like, yeah. you know, and small things at that. So, like, you know, it could be like, um, you know, you, you got to go to the post office and do A, B, and C, you know, maybe two or three times a week you might stop by the post office just because, you can, right? You have that thing to do. But when something like this happens, you go to the post office one time. <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's like, and since I go one time, then all that time I would have spent on the third time is freed up. So now, you know, if I have projects in front of me like I do, I'm just practicing more, you know, thinking about putting things out properly. So it, it actually helps me. And, and also because I'm like, I'm also a producer and a writer, it's like I spent my my best, most productive times in quarantine. We just didn't call it quarantine. You know, musicians uh, call it the shed. Producers, you know, call it, you know, I'm going underground, you know, when we're writing and producing. So we do that. We do this normally. Gotcha. Uh, but now there's just, you know, kind of a label around us about this point in time. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally does. And that's the thing I love about talking to you guys is that I always get a brand new, fresh perspective on things. And that's, that's beautiful. So I do know, if we go back to the beginnings of your life, Coltrane was a big influence. Talk to me about how you got the jazz bug. Well, my dad had a lot of jazz soul records when I was a kid. All styles of music, but in particular, when it came to jazz, he had Eddie Harris, Hugh Mazzucayla, Yusuf Latif, um, people like that and Ramsey Lewis. So it was really a soul jazz atmosphere uh, in terms of jazz. Now when, and I was playing guitar, from, I was studying classical guitar from like age 10 to 13. And then at 13, I heard, uh, I was seeing the saxophone visually in commercials and, and, and videos and things like that. And, uh, and so I was buying like pop music samples of saxophones. They weren't jazz players, but I was getting in tune to the sound of it. And uh, and this was on my own, aside from my dad. So I was like, I used to watch the show, uh, the TV show Miami Vice. 
and uh, they had a soundtrack, and there was a song by a singer named Glenn Fry, who I'm sure you know. Yeah. Um, and so there was a saxophone featured on it. So the saxophone was right up front. The song was called "You Belong to the City." So I would I would yeah. listen to that over and over. I was hearing that, and then somebody at the guitar uh, shop where I took lessons said, I, I told them, I said, I'm thinking about taking, you know, learning saxophone. I kept seeing the saxophone in commercials, and then I, I would hear it on these pot records. And then someone said, you should get John Coltrane Giant Steps. And then I put it on after I bought it, and the first song, Giant Steps, just blew through me so fast, man. And, um, you know, at that point, in terms of hearing real speed, and like in terms of what I was listening to, I was hearing that kind of speed in the music in Van Halen. Like he used to play the guitar that fast, just going. So yeah. when I heard it on saxophone, and I heard all that harmony and and jazz improvisation, and I could tell it was not preconceived. That's when it really knocked me out, and I knew that it was the next level of everything that I was checking out. It was, it was, it was not just the le next level. It was far beyond the level I was listening to music at. Far beyond. Absolutely. Yeah, right, you know yeah. I mean? you yeah. Know, melodically, you know, the stuff I was listening to, would just it would take its time, you know. But this was not taking its time. I wasn't really concerned about how I felt about it. It was just go it was going so fast, you know. And then that, yeah. that really riddled my thinking and my hearing and just shifted me into 180 degree, uh, 180 degrees in the other direction musically. You know, it's rare that I talk to someone that has a doctorate in jazz studies. Talk to me a little bit about what you've learned in a formal environment that's been so, so good and so important for your playing. You know, it was more of a continuation. You know, when I was getting my bachelor's degree at Berkeley College of Music, I, I was really studying hard. I was listening to a lot of great music, uh, whether it was jazz or whether it was post-tonal classical composers, and I was playing a lot. And so it was really a time where I was studying and playing with really, really great musicians uh, that were in Boston, people like Richie Goods, bassist out of Pittsburgh, Anthony Wanzi, pianist, um, uh, different people like that. Uh, so it was a, a time of, of, of substantial growth. Now, when I went to New York, I was growing, but in a different kind of way, growing in terms of, like, how to, like, be, like, on point, on, you know, in gear five and be able to execute your career all the time. But it wasn't a time of studying. That was, the, that was where you had to put your 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 rubber to the pavement and, and make some make some moves, you know what I mean? Uh so that was a different time, but what I found when I was in New York, I was performing a lot, I was touring, I was recording, I was one of the first call musicians there. But what I found was that I was not using a lot of the tools that I had developed when I was in Boston studying. And so by the time I left, I was ready to get back to that type of studying and that kind of practicing, and 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 so it was a good time. It, it just kind of all happened at the same time. It was like, okay, I'm doing everything I wanted to do, 
And one thing about me, I always set goals for myself. So once I started to achieve the type of work that I had been hoping I would get 20 years earlier or 15 years earlier when I was just starting out, once I started to get it, I needed to set new goals. Um, and I also didn't want to do the things that I was doing when I was 18. I didn't want to accept the same type of work. And so in order to really expound beyond that, I had to go in and get a doctorate. So when I did, uh, it was like a return to a time. It was a more advanced return, but it was a return to a time of studying really outstanding artists, composers, practicing, you know, being back in California where I did a lot of my studying when I was in high school. Uh, I went to USC in Los Angeles. So I was back in that atmosphere of just like wide open spaces, trying to think, trying to really put things together. And so um, it was it was a great, great time for me. I learned a lot. You know, I, I basically took what I was studying <clears throat> as a undergrad and like it, it all advanced by the time I went back to it. So like studying composers like Bartok, Debussy, people like that. Bird, Train, uh, Freddie Hubbard. It was really a return back to where I was when I was 18, when I was 17, except just more advanced. So what do you like best about being a musician? I, I, I like the best part about it is being able to think freely and actually being better because you think freely. Yeah. You know, not a lot of uh, opportunity to do that. You know, right on. a lot of most most uh, occupations are you're doing your very best when you're thinking in a very finite, particular way. But being yeah. a musician, you're doing your best when you're not thinking like most people, at least a jazz musician. You know, we're going to eventually get back to live music. You know, um, it's going to happen. We don't know exactly when or how, but it will. My question is, what do you hope both the musician and the crowd realizes from this absence of live music? From this absence of live music, I mean, people are going to appreciate it more. You know, when you asked me that question just now, I started to think about the 1920s and when the phonograph was developed. And suddenly people who once would have to go to a live show had this phonograph or rather gramophone in their, you know, in their, in their possession and they could listen to that musician at home. Right. And yeah. so, you know, in, in one way for the listener, it was great because they could hear Louis Armstrong or Scott Joplin at any time. Right. They could just put on this, this recording and then they could decide to go hear that artist when the artist came through town. Right. So, you know, it's it's a pivotal moment right now. I think there are certain people, or I don't I don't think it's, it it has really ran its course to really be able to like say this is what this time represents. I'll tell you one thing that is kind of unique, and that is that somebody reached out to me, uh, a person who uh, would attend my concerts, and they specifically asked me for video footage because he and other friends of his who were also jazz listeners wanted to exchange videos and post them online. So I thought that was unique, and it really kind of yeah. showed me that there are some people out there who 
they actually really need the music, like in order to like live their life, right? It's like a it's a component in their lifestyle. Like they might go to the gym, you know, they might go to, you know, uh, the beach, and then they go to listen to jazz. Like it's a part of their ecosystem. That was a learning moment for me. I haven't quite figured it all out, and I think it's still evolving. Uh, I think this is a great time for musicians to charge people to listen to their music, and there are some platforms that are that are rising up. Uh, I'm actually a part of one. I'll be doing a concert for one called Act for Music, A-C-T, then the number four, and then the word music. Um, so that'll be a situation where people will pay to, to look at the videos. And so, you know, it, it's interesting in that way. Maybe maybe that will be the wave of the future, you know, that this experience will kind of give everyone sort of like a, a reading meter of of what people will pay for versus the whole, you know, just checking stuff out for free. I think that people are kind of proving that they need to see content as they would if they were going out to shows. So it's up to the artist to say, okay, well, if that's the case, you want content, here, this is something I just put together and it's going to cost you this amount of money. And I think people will pay for it if the, if the other side of it is possibly getting something that could, you know, make their life uncomfortable, right? Like if you have, like, if you have the choice of paying $20 to see my concert on, on your phone or going out to a show and hoping you don't, get sneezed on, you know what I mean, by the wrong yeah. person, you might pay $20, you know? Yeah, totally, totally. So I got one more question for you, and it's this. Everyone has their perception of you, your family, your friends, your fans, but you're living your life. Who do you think you are? Who do I think I am? <clears throat> I think I am special. No, I'm just playing. I'm just playing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, um, well, I, I know who I am. Um, who I am is somebody that's serious about their life, their music, uh, their family, um, and who's uh, ex extremely productive and, and studied. You know, uh, that's who I am. You know, someone who likes to work out, keep in shape. And someone who looks inward. And, make, and constantly uh, corrects anything that needs to be corrected. That's who I am. Right on. I like it, man. Hey, man, thank yeah. you for taking some time out today. I really appreciate it. It's been Oh, you're welcome, Joe. Yes, indeed. Thanks for, uh, for reaching out. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Oakland, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Tio Dross for his time, music, and stories. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com and for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. <laughs>